like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> you know, the catalyst for every great revival in the history of, church, of the church has been biblical preaching. On the day of Pentecost, the church was born in Acts chapter 2, and 3,000 were saved at the preaching of Peter. The gospel spread to Samaria in Acts chapter 8 through the preaching of Philip. It spread to the Gentiles through the preaching of men like Peter and Barnabas and Paul. The gospel spread through the Roman Empire through the preaching of the church fathers who took the baton from the apostles. And after centuries of darkness, what was it that brought the light of truth back to the church in the 16th century? Well, it was the preaching of the great reformers, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Zwingli, Latimer, what was it that fired the Puritan revival in 17th century England? It was the preaching of men like John Bunyan and Richard Baxter and Thomas Manton and Jeremiah Burroughs. What was it that led to the great awakening of the 18th century? It was the preaching of men like John Wesley and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And 19th century England flourished under the preaching of men like Charles Spurgeon, Alexander McLaren, Alexander White, and Joseph Parker. And we could list some great Bible preachers today as well. But I think there's a disturbing trend in the church today. There's a movement today to make churches user-friendly and seeker-friendly. And much of that is healthy. Many of the changes that have occurred, I think, are long overdue. But some churches have taken that concept too far. And they have extracted the thing that people consider most unfriendly, and that's the biblical sermon. The comedian Gallagher says, growing up, church was the weekly reminder that there is something in life worse than school. And what most people think is the worst part of church is the sermon. I was in a fellow's office the other day, and knowing that I was a preacher, he began to tell me about the new preacher that they had gotten. And he said, I like him a lot, but I told him I've got one complaint. He preaches too long. And he went on to say, I don't think people can listen to a sermon longer than 20 minutes. And then he paused and said, how long do you preach? <laughs> and I said, well, about 40 minutes. And he couldn't believe that you would stand for that or even sit for that. Preaching is losing its prominence in many churches today. And that's largely the fault of the preachers. Many have abandoned the Word of God, and they resort to things like psychology and politics and relational chit-chat, which means they really have nothing to say. In which case, I agree with the fellow. If somebody has nothing to say, I'd rather they tell me nothing in 20 minutes than 40 minutes. But you know, the sad result of that is that we're seeing what God predicted through Amos years ago. The Lord said to Amos in Amos 8.11, Behold, days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. We face that kind of famine today. People are thirsting to hear the Word of God and at the same time, many churches are downplaying the importance of biblical preaching. 
That same kind of famine existed in the first century Jewish synagogues. They met together, read from the Old Testament scriptures, but didn't really understand what they were reading. But on a certain Sabbath day in about 46 AD, Paul stood up in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and began to preach. And his sermon is recorded for us in Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 41. We looked at it last time. This morning, we're going to look at the rest of the chapter where we see how the people reacted, which will demonstrate to us why preaching is so important. Because in verses 42 to 52, we'll see the difference a sermon makes. And we can pick out four things that it does. It reveals, it rebukes, it reaps, R-E-A-P-S, and it remains. First of all, it reveals in verses 42 to 45. When the truth of God is preached, it reveals what's in the heart. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word goes into the heart like a sword and it reveals what's really there. And in doing so, it separates the true from the false, the professor from the possessor, the brokenhearted from the hard-hearted. Jesus, the greatest preacher of all, made it clear in Matthew chapter 10 that the gospel is divisive. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And that becomes clear on this occasion when Paul preached. Because his preaching reveals two kinds of hearts. First of all, the soft-hearted in verses 42 to 44. And there's four indications here of a soft heart. First of all, they were pleased. Verse 42. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, as a visiting preacher, that's the kind of response you want to get. We would like you to come back next week. That's their response to Paul. These people had never heard preaching like this. They were used to the scribes whose teaching was basically dry history lessons. And here comes Paul on this occasion, and he's preaching passionately about the Messiah and telling them that all history pointed to him. All prophecy is fulfilled in him, and he is the one who brings forgiveness. And so they begin begging that he'll come back next Sabbath day and preach again. First of all, they were pleased. Second, they were persistent. Verse 43, now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. Many of them couldn't wait until the next week. And so to hear more, they followed Paul and Barnabas through the streets of Antioch, hanging on every word. And Luke tells us this group was made up of Jews and God-fearing proselytes. That would be Gentiles who had become full converts of Judaism. They had been circumcised. They had obligated themselves to keep the whole law. And now they're hearing Paul say what he said back in verse 39, 
and that is that Jesus could set them free from their sins, something the law could never do. And so they didn't just have a passing interest in what he had to say. They wanted to hear more. Thirdly, they were professing. Notice the end of verse 43. They followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Now, they must have been professing to have received the grace of God because the exhortation is, I want you to continue in the grace of God. Now, what does Paul mean when he says continue in the grace of God? You say, well, I guess he's telling them that they need to work hard to hang on to what they've received. No. You see, that's the very opposite of what he's telling them. Because what is grace? Grace is me receiving what I could never earn and never pay for. Grace is God's blessing given to the undeserving. And so, you see, grace is not something I work for. It's something I receive. And so when Paul says to continue in grace, it's not a matter of them doing something more. It's a matter of them receiving that as a gift. These people in Galatia always struggled with this concept of grace. And Paul later wrote them a letter. You have it in your Bible. It's Galatians. And I want to show you a verse there just to give you this concept. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. And I want you to see the verse because it's a largely misunderstood verse. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. Paul, writing to these same people later on, says, You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Now, a lot of people misunderstand that phrase. You have fallen from grace. The person who has fallen from grace is not a Christian who stumbles into sin and finds God saying to him, you finally crossed the line. You've finally gone so far that my grace cannot reach you. That's not who, the person who has fallen from grace. You see, the person who has fallen from grace, we're told in this verse, is the person who is seeking to be justified by law. They have fallen from grace because they are depending on what they do to save them. They are trying to be justified by the works of the law. So you see, you don't fall from grace into sin. You fall from grace into legalism. And law-keeping and faith in Jesus Christ are mutually exclusive. Paul would later say in Romans 11:6, but if salvation is by grace... It is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't mix grace and works. It's an either-or proposition. And Paul worried about this in the case of these Jews and proselytes in Antioch because of their background. And so as they're walking along on this first occasion when they hear the gospel, he challenges them to continue in the grace of God. And then the fourth thing we see that indicates they had a soft heart is that they were present. Verse 44 of Acts chapter 13. And the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. On the next Sabbath, they were back. 
anxiously ready to hear a message from Paul. And their enthusiasm was so contagious that it says nearly the whole city showed up at the synagogue. And so we see as Paul preaches, the Word of God reveals that there are some who had soft hearts. But it also reveals another kind of heart, and that is the hard heart. And that's in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. You've probably all been in a church where they have one of those little uh, attendance and offering displays up at the front on the side. Uh, if you can imagine one of those in this synagogue, uh, they usually say attendance one year ago, 56. Attendance last Sabbath, 55. One person died. Attendance today, 9,899. I mean, the whole, nearly the whole city shows up on this Sabbath day. And it says, when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy. Now, what are they jealous about? Well, I think two things. Number one, they were jealous of Paul for drawing the kind of crowds they could never draw. That's the same thing we're told that the chief priests were jealous of Jesus for in Mark 15, 10. But I think there's a second reason, and I think this is the primary thing. They were jealous of their Jewish religion. Some of those Jews and proselytes showed up on this Sabbath day like they did on every other Sabbath day. And they were kind of like some of us. They had their own pew, their sort of designated pew. So they show up on this Sabbath day, running late as usual, knowing that there's not going to be a big crowd, and they find somebody sitting in their pew. And that's not the worst part of it, because this is a Gentile city. So if nearly the whole city shows up, the worst part of it is who is sitting in their pew. It's a Gentile. And, and Paul is not directing these Gentiles to become proselytes to Judaism. He's telling them that they can come to faith in Christ apart from Judaism, apart from the law. And so they are jealous of these Gentiles who were in their synagogue and who were being called to come to God apart from their religion. And so what do they do? We're told here that they were contradicting the things Paul was saying. They were saying, the Messiah has not come. You cannot be justified apart from the law. And beyond that, it tells us, they were, in verse 45, blaspheming. They were speaking evil of the Lord Jesus. They were saying, he's not the Messiah. He's not the Son of God. And so the first difference a sermon makes is, it reveals. It reveals the soft hearts of those who are responsive to the Lord, and it reveals the hard hearts of those who rejected him. Second thing a sermon does is it rebukes in verses 46 to 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Now, Paul and Barnabas are not intimidated. It seems that the more the opposition intensified, the more courage they got. They spoke out boldly. And the first point that they make to their Jewish listeners is that they had been given the place of privilege. The word of God was spoken to you first. 
And we see that emphasis throughout the New Testament. It was clear in the activity of the Lord Jesus. In, G in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 24, Jesus said to the Canaanite woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's why when he sent out the twelve on their preaching endeavor, he gave them these instructions in Matthew chapter 10. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's why Peter had said in Acts chapter 3 and verse 26 to the Jews, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And even after they rejected Christ, the gospel went first to the Jews. That's why in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. The Jews were God's chosen people. They had been given the promise of the Messiah. And to fulfill that promise, Jesus came to them first and the gospel came to them first. And Paul says that was necessary. And I think that explains to us why whenever Paul came to a city, he went first to the synagogue, preached to the Jews, and then went from there to the Gentiles. And so he says it was necessary that the word first be spoken to you but then comes the rebuke. He says, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. The word has come to you and you repudiate it. That means you push it aside. And what happens when you push the gospel aside? Well, Paul makes it very clear here. He says, you judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. God considered you worthy of eternal life. He preached the gospel to you first, and you have judged yourselves unworthy. And whenever anyone rejects the gospel, that's the same rebuke that they get. Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins. When you believe, the gospel is good news. When you reject it, it brings a rebuke. And having rebuked them for their unbelief, Paul now kind of twists the sword a little bit at the end of verse 46. He says, Since you repudiated and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. That's the same pattern we read about in John chapter 1. It says about Jesus that he came to his own, the Jewish people, and those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, who's that? The Gentiles. To them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Paul says, you have rejected, you've judged yourselves unworthy, we're going to the Gentiles. And then to show that this, or their opposition to the Gentiles is not only against Paul and Barnabas, but actually against the Old Testament Scriptures, he now quotes in verse 47, Isaiah 49, 6, For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. Now, if you go back and read that chapter, it's very interesting because originally he's talking there about Israel. And God is saying that Israel is to be a light to the Gentiles. God was going to raise them up to eventually read out, reach out to the Gentiles. That didn't happen. They dropped the ball. And so that passage is actually fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. 
In fact, this is the passage that Simeon quotes when he holds Jesus in his arms as a baby in Luke chapter 2. You are to be the light to the Gentiles. And so here we have Paul rebuking them. They should have been carrying the message of salvation to the Gentiles. Instead, they were rejecting it. And by doing so, he says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Third thing that a sermon does is it reaps in verses 48 to 50. When the truth of God is preached, it always will reap fruit. And as Jesus told us, there are two kinds of fruit. There's good fruit and there's bad fruit. And we will find both kinds here. First of all, the good fruit. First one is joy, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. The message that angered the Jews delighted the Gentiles. And that ought to be our response today, continually, rejoicing. You know, when you read the Old Testament and you read about Israel in the Old Testament, you know where we find ourselves in the Old Testament? We're the Hittites and the Philistines and the Canaanites and the Chaldeans. We are the outcasts. We are the enemy. We are the idolatrous pagans in the Old Testament. And God has chosen to turn His grace on us so that we don't simply get in the back door of Judaism as a proselyte. We have the privilege of becoming the children of God. And so as Paul turns to the Gentiles and offers them the message of salvation, their first response was to rejoice. Second was worship. Verse 48 continues and says, and they were glorifying the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord that the Jews blasphemed, the Gentiles glorified. The Jews pushed it aside. The Gentiles lifted it up. And that should always be our response to the word of God. They treated it with the respect it deserved. They humbled themselves and exalted the word of God. And that's the attitude God always responds to. Isaiah 66, 2 says, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. They rejoiced. They worshipped. The third evidence of fruit is faith. Verse 48. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As these Gentiles listened to the word of God being preached by Paul, many believed. But I want you to notice who it was who believed. It says, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who appointed them? Well, obviously, God did. The Bible clearly teaches that salvation is a sovereign work of God. In John chapter 6 and verse 65, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In Colossians 3.12, Paul refers to Christians as those who have been chosen of God. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul tells the believers at Thessalonica that God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And numerous times in the New Testament, believers are referred to as the elect or the chosen. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us when God made that choice. It says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 
And Revelation 13, 8 tells us that from the foundation of the world, he wrote our names in the Lamb's book of life. In fact, the word appointed here in verse 48 can be translated inscribed or enrolled. And so Luke is telling us that those whose names have been enrolled in the book of life believed. Now that makes this a very interesting passage because verse 46 places the responsibility in salvation upon man. Paul says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Why? Because you rejected the gospel. Verse 48 places the responsibility in salvation upon God. Those who believed, believed because they had been appointed to eternal life. God chose, man chooses. Do I believe that both of those are true? Yes. Can I explain how both of those fit together? No. But I don't lose any sleep over it. Because I know that I have a finite mind and God has an infinite mind. And I know that what doesn't make sense totally in my mind does make sense in the infinite mind of God. There are a lot of things I can't explain. I can't explain to you the Trinity. I can't explain how God is three persons in one God. can't explain it. I can't explain to you how Jesus is fully God and fully man in the same person. I cannot explain that. Do I believe it? Absolutely. And it's the same with the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. I cannot explain how that fits together. But the Bible teaches it, and I believe it. Third evidence of fruit is faith. Fourth evidence is evangelism, verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Evangelism always follows true salvation. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 that confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord goes hand in hand with believing. And so these new believers carried the good news not just throughout the city, but throughout the entire countryside. There's the good fruit. Now let me show you the bad fruit, verse 50. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. While the preaching of the word of God reaped godly fruit in the lives of the Gentiles, it produced another kind of fruit in the lives of the Jews. They were unable to silence Paul and Barnabas through debate and so they go another angle here. They used politics, but they didn't have any political clout themselves. And so it says they won over the prominent women in the city, which indicates here that they were probably proselytes, and they won over the leading men. This was a Gentile city, and so they had to win over these Gentile rulers, and it says they persecuted Paul and, or Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what the persecution is here, but the indication in Scripture is it was pretty substantial because later Paul refers to it in 2 Timothy 3.11 this way. He talks about the persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch. Something happened at Antioch in the terms of persecution that was substantial. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, three times I was beaten with rods. We don't know where all of those occurred. It's very likely that at least one of them occurred on this occasion in Antioch. 
And so the third difference a sermon makes is it reaps. Good fruit, joy, worship, faith, evangelism, and it also reaps bad fruit, persecution. And then the fourth thing that a sermon does is it remains. Verses 51 and 52. When the Word of God is preached, it doesn't just produce temporary results. It remains. It endures. And I think that's evident, first of all, in the lives of Paul and Barnabas. Verse 51. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Shaking off the dust of your feet was a Jewish thing. It was symbolic. They used to come out of Gentile territory into Israel and they would shake the Gentile dust off their feet. It became associated with the idea of protest against. What's interesting is that Paul and Barnabas reversed the tables here. They are shaking really the Jewish dust off their feet and they're going to the Gentiles. They have offered it to the Jews, they have rejected and now they're going to the Gentiles. And although they have been persecuted and driven out, what I want you to see here is that they're not quitting. They're not heading for home. It tells us here that with sore beaten backs, they went to Iconium, which was about 80 miles to the east. And when we get to chapter 14 and verse 1, it says, immediately they entered the synagogue and began to preach again. They endured, they remained. That truth is also evident in the lives of the Gentile believers in Antioch, verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The two preachers that brought them the gospel have been persecuted and run out of town. The believers are probably experiencing that same persecution themselves. Surely, under these conditions, these new believers won't last. But we're reminded here that though the preachers were gone, the Holy Spirit was present. And they were continually filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. When the Word of God is preached, it remains in the lives of people. What difference does a sermon make? It reveals people's hearts. It rebukes the unbelieving. It reaps the fruit of God as well as persecution. And it remains despite the circumstances. And that's why in writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for the privilege of having it. We thank you for the privilege of sitting at your feet today and seeing this example of Paul as he preached in a synagogue in the first century. And Father, as we look at the response to that message, we would examine our hearts this morning to see what your word is doing in us, whether it's revealing a soft heart or a hard heart, whether it's bringing us to joy or rebuking us, whether it's producing good fruit or bad fruit, and whether it's remaining in the evidence of the filling of the Spirit and the joy that you bring. And Lord, I just pray that that might be the, re the response of each person today as they sit under the sound of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.